Glad you're here today, and uh, if you want to get a heads up where we're going each week in the sermon, you can uh, read the Read, Think, and Pray. We send that out every week. If you're on our mailing list, on our email list, you get this Read, Think, and Pray. It's basically some scripture, some, some thoughts, and a prayer, and it's not meant to give you a mini version of the sermon. It's meant to get your creative juices flowing about the topic, the theme, and uh, it's very helpful. Um, uh, to whom I don't know, but uh, if, if anybody reads it, I'm sure it's very, very helpful. Hey, let me ask you a question. Uh, growing up, uh, did your parents teach you etiquette, manners? Did they try to instill in you virtue? Some of you are saying, no, oh, no. Uh, that's good, probably, because you get to not have to recover from a lot of things. Uh, 
did you ever go to anything that was a formal program that taught you how to sit at a table, how to talk to people? Uh, if, you're, if your mom or dad, especially if your dad ever said, now look, when you meet people, look them straight in the eye and shake their hand firmly. If you ever had that instruction, well, that's what we're talking about. That's some version of uh, training in virtue and uh, preparing you for the world. Uh, there's a program that has been going on for 65 years plus uh, all along uh, the beach cities uh, from Coronado through Point Loma, La Jolla, Del Mar, etc. And maybe it's even further inland now, but that, it started 65 plus years ago by a man named Mr. Benjamin. And how many of you have ever heard of Mr. Benjamin or had kids? Okay, so you understand Mr. Benjamin. And Mr. Benjamin finally uh, passed the baton to Mr. Benjamin Jr., who carried this on. I think they're still doing it. There's a group in all those cities. There's two groups in Point Loma because they need extra help with virtue, apparently. Uh, and so it's a six-month uh, program that uh, is for sixth graders, and they go twice a month. And I can tell you from observation, the girls love it, the boys not so much. And the idea is they all get into this big room and, you know, the boys are like this, and the girls are like this, and they're all looking around and Mr. Benjamin tells them to go up and introduce themselves to one another. And then it's, it's, it's about how to be, participate in ballroom dancing, which is always relevant to all children at all times. I've, I've used those skills so many times I can't even tell you. Actually, so many times I could tell you. Uh, uh, but, oh, gosh, would you, would, would you like to dance? Oh, thank you. I'd love to. And so, you know, the, <laughs> to finally Mr. Benjamin says, you can stop now. Thank you, you know. And then it, it culminates in a big party, in a big celebration. Uh, the, the best part, though, for me, besides watching our daughters go through this and seeing the inevitable nervousness of the kids, was seeing the parents. Because the parents were sort of in that, you know, mode like this. Because uh, pretty much every parent tries to instill in their child some sense of virtue, how to, how to function at a table. Uh, the nicest thing you, you can say to any parent is, you know, your child is so well-mannered. They go, no, I'm Bobby's mom. You know, <laughs> right, yeah, I'm talking about Bobby. Bobby Jones. Yeah, Bobby Jones. He's such a well-mannered young man. He looked me in the eye, gave me a firm handshake. Did, did you check your wallet afterwards? Did, did, is, he, is he setting you up for a, you know... No, he's a wonderful young man. And anyway, this is a big deal, right? The, the, the duty and the responsibility of a parent to instill some level of virtue. And these conversations can get intense, you know, uh, when it gets to things that are deep. Uh, because inevitably, uh, Mr. Benjamin covers all the superficial things in Cotillion. Superficial but significant. Uh, but he's not going deep. He, he didn't just start the evening by saying, how's your soul? How's it going with your soul? You know, are you feeding your soul? That's more like straighten up there, young man. And he's, got a big, he's a big guy with moving voice, and so he'd point at you, some little kids like this, you know. It may as well have been the preliminary exposure to a boot camp experience, but uh, who's, who asked those questions? Well, moms and dads. And this is where it gets deep. And, and nothing more, you know, tenuous and intimidating for a parent than to have your child ask you big questions about why. There was in that ancient movie, uh, Terminator, <clears throat> it was featuring a former governor of California, and who then later became an actor. He's so good at pretending to be governor, he, he became an actor. Um, but he plays this cyborg, you know, creature, as you remember, and uh, at one point, this bad guy's chasing him, and they catch the bad guy, and the little kid is 
himself in the, in the, in, in the future. And it's an interesting story. And so uh, the Schwarzenegger character uh, is going to shoot the guy. And the kid goes, no, no, no. No, you can't do that. And, and the cyborg says, why? Well, well, you just can't do that. Why? Well, we, you don't, we don't do that here. Why? Right? Now you get into the big uh, heart of the matter of virtue. Why? 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 It's one thing to say, why the fork on the outside? Why is there a fork on the outside? I've got two hands that work perfectly fine. Why do I need to learn how to come in from the side of the forks and the knives and the, you know? Uh, that's one level of complexity, but the big one is why? Why God? And I, some of you heard me say, you know, at about, I don't know, about six or seven, um, I told my mom I, I didn't believe in God, just trying out the idea. I really didn't know what I was, I was doing as much as just trying out big ideas. Mom, I don't think I believe in God. And, she, and you know, she grew, up going, she grew up being part of the Church of England, never actually attending the Church of England. And so she was shocked. And she said, good God. I, I mean, Stephen, you, you really must believe in God. And I said, well, why? Mom, do you believe in God? Well, yes. You know, and, and she's thinking, oh, gosh. You know. But she taught me the prayers, you know. Um, you know, now I leave me down to sleep. Lord, thank you for this food, whatever it went. I don't quite remember, but... She tried her best to teach me those things and to instill a sense of virtue in us. And, uh, and her best thing was if you did something that wasn't virtuous, she'd say, oh, that's so common. <laughs> okay, that's so common. Uh, okay, you know, there's some interesting categories here about virtue, you know. And, and so, you, you know how it goes. Uh, so we're we're going to talk a little bit about, not a little bit, we're going to talk a lot about this in this series we're doing called Living a Virtuous Life. Why? <laughs> Why live a virtuous life? To impress people? Uh, it sure helps if you're at a business dinner and you don't look like you just came out of a cave. But more importantly, it's really interesting to see what your life looks like when you get to, to in 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 influence people over the course of it. What does it look like to influence your kids? What does it look like to influence your grandkids? What does it look like to influence people that uh, you, in a sense, lording it over if you wanted to and, and using... Uh, for their labor. Um, a dear friend ran the, the largest boat business in San Diego and when 2008 came around, he said, this is not going to be a good decade going forward for the boat business, so he decided to shut down his business because he realized, I could walk away from it. All the offices all along the coast by some expensive boats, sail and power. And he said, you know, <clears throat> what I'm going to do is what I think Jesus would have me do. I'm going to blame other people. No, he said, I'm going to shut this business down and, and find the 100 plus people who work for me jobs. And he did. And uh, several years after that, a friend I know who's a phenomenal business guy uh, was flying his plane from Newport Beach over to Catalina. And as he's in that little tiny you know, hangar, he meets these two guys and they start talking. And he said, what do you guys do? Uh, well, we're, we're boat mechanics. Oh, wow. Well, what kind of boats? He, start, he starts talking to them, and this guy knew my friend. They said, hey, do you know so-and-so? They said, oh, my gosh, the guy's the greatest. Uh, he had to shut down the business. He made sure we had a job. That summer, this friend who had flown his plane over there, and me, and our kids and families, and that guy and his family did a boat trip up in British Columbia. 
my friend couldn't wait to say, hey, I talked to some of your former employees. And that guy didn't flinch. He goes, oh, yeah? And he said something funny like, uh, how bad was it? You know, kind of a thing. He said, no. They said, you're the kind of man they aspire to be. You're the kind of guy that everybody should get to work with and for. That's virtue. That's practical virtue. And we're going to talk about that because that's a gift from God, and that's where we're going with it today. So the first big idea then would be virtue is God's character in ours. Uh, Virtue is God's character in ours. Now you might say, well, what if a person's an atheist or agnostic? Sorry. It's like if, if the cop pulls you over and starts to give you a ticket and says, I just don't believe in speed laws. He goes, interesting. How's it working for you today? So the fact that you might be an atheist or agnostic doesn't mean that you're not accountable to a God who created you with the capacity for virtue and holds you accountable for it. He's not trying to catch you doing something wrong. That's not God's MO. It's he wants to help you do something right. So virtue is God's character in ours. Virtue is moral and relational excellence reflecting God's image in us. That's why you aspire to that. That's why every parent, even if they don't know quite why they're teaching virtue or what kind of virtue they're teaching, does it. Because somehow God's image is imprinted in us. We are created in the image of God that's been distorted, defaced by sin, by this alienation between us and God. But it still matters. That's why every human being is trying to get it right. Every, every religion, every, every ideology that you ever bump into, it's somebody trying to make sense of it. The ones you might like the least, Karl Marx sitting in the British Library trying to figure out how to make life better for people who are being oppressed, comes up with an oppressive system. But the motive was, I want life better for people. It's no fun being a serf in Russia. It's no fun being abused by wealthy landowners who don't care whether you live or die. It doesn't matter uh, to them that you are in this treadmill that they can never get off of. Uh, so revolutions all happen because somebody's saying there must be a better way. Of course, the, the, the guys in power, the bad guys in power are replaced by other guys who learn to be bad guys. And so Nicaragua is not better for the Sandinistas. Wealthy kids who grew up in Nicaragua, super wealthy kids. Highly educated kids, privileged children in Nicaragua saying, there must be a way to, better way to run Nicaragua. And so the Sandinistas form, and look what we have. But it was, it was started by a desire for virtue. Why? Because it's imprinted in us by God. And so we complain when virtue is abused or absent, don't we? A bunch of people in New York are really ticked off right now. Our governor should be better. All the people whose families died in rest homes, nursing homes, because they were exposed to the pandemic, virus, COVID, are saying that. And now a bunch of other people who worked up close and personal with the governor. Sadly, it's documented. Every one of us will stand before God one day, and it's all documented. If you don't like what's happening in Cuomo, uh, get ready. Every one of us will stand and deliver, saying, let's have an account of your life. Um... We complain when it's abused or absent. We hold people accountable for it. We codify our moral expectations in laws, civil and criminal, right? You've seen all the acts, all, all the acts of violence and disrespect on airlines. Um, you might say, well, they deserve it. They're horrible the way they treat people, right? Granted, but you're not allowed to abuse the staff. And so they've been trying to figure out how to make those not just civil charges against people, but criminal charges. Right now, there's civil charges. 
How do we make this a criminal charge? Why? Because they're saying there's virtue at stake here, and we're not actually getting to hold people accountable. There's people who had a really interesting visit at the Capitol on January 6th. It's kind of different than most Capitol tours. And now they're being invited at the expense of the government to spend several years thinking about it. Uh, the first case was just resolved this week. Three to five years of deep thinking about virtue. Now, whatever you think about all the things around that, the fact is you don't like when virtue is maligned or undermined. You just don't like it. You don't like it when people cheat, steal, or rob. You don't like it when you're caught doing it. The people you know are caught doing it, is what I mean. So the irony, though, is that laws can't make us moral or virtuous. Not even Cotillion can do that. You can't make enough laws, establish enough codes, write enough rules to make people virtuous. Do we all agree on that? Otherwise, we'd all be perfect. We have more laws right now in the state of California. We have more laws in the United States than we know what to do with. I, I thought it was very funny when in this recall thing, I'm not getting into political things, I'm just getting into human nature. In the recall thing, uh, there was a, a law change, and the governor said, I didn't know. And so how he was going to be represented on this recall ballot was, was not what he wanted. And they said, well, you're the governor. It's the way the law says it should be. I know, I just didn't know, right? And this is how funny it is. All of us are overwhelmed by the laws, and we just don't know. Every year in January, they print a list of all the law changes. I read them, I think, how in the world can anybody remember all this stuff? And it doesn't make us necessarily any better. Uh, so virtue is more than good manners, social conditioning. It's spiritual development. This is the big point. If virtue is God's character and ours, then virtue is ultimately a process of spiritual development, not being more religious, because you can have all the religious rules and laws you want and still be a pedophile, still be an abuser, still abuse your power. Protestant, Catholic, doesn't matter what setting. Human beings often hide behind religion because it's a good cover uh, for their, their uh, you know, nefarious behavior. And probably, I'm guessing if you interviewed any of these people, they'd say, I was really trying to get it right. I just couldn't help myself. You made these vows. You, you made these commitments. I know, I know. I'm totally ashamed of myself. So if virtue is more than that, what is it? Well, spiritual development, the Bible calls it righteousness. Being rightly related to God, rightly related to your own being, uh, rightly related to people and rightly related to all creation. We have to care about all creation. Not at the expense of people, but people are part of creation. And so part of our care for people also includes our care for creation. That's why we wrestle with environmental issues and all those offsetting priorities. Well, do we save this or save that? You know, and, and these are hard things because we're trying to be virtuous to all of it. And so righteousness, basically, my working definition of it is it's doing the right things for the right reasons in order to do right by God and people. Doing the right things for the right reasons in order to do right by God and people. Now, if somebody is angry at you uh, because you had to enforce your authority, and you said, okay, let me get this straight. Are you angry at me, or are you just angry with the fact that I'm enforcing the laws or the rules or the standards that we both know are in play? Yeah, I'm angry about that. Okay, so I won't take it personally. Or, no, I'm angry because, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm being held accountable for this, but I don't like the way you're doing it. 
You're abusing your authority by pushing me around and bullying me. This is why every prisoner in every prison resents the authority. They know in their heart of hearts they deserve to be incarcerated for their crime. What they don't like is the abuse they take from other people. None of us like that, do we? We just don't like being in that position where somebody has, holds it over us. You're at the Canadian border last week, and the Canadian border guards decided to have a work slowdown. You're a truck driver. You get paid on the deliveries and the pickups, and you're in the line for hours and hours and hours, and you're steaming and fuming. But you know if you yell at the guy, go, what kind of idiot are you to make me do this? You go, oh, over here, we have an extra thing we need to do with your truck. Right? So none of us like this. This is the conflict we, res we wrestle with. We love righteousness. We just don't like it when it's abused in any form. But we know that righteousness really is doing the right things for the right reasons to do right by God and people. And when we see it's not happening, we get really angry. We want to change something. So what we do, we get really creative. We ah, another law. That's it. We need another rule. And you go, oh, man, it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. Because every one of us can game the rules. Every one of us can find a rationalization for, yes, but in this case, we're all geniuses. At, yeah, but, but this is the exception. I know that, that rule is exactly what it should be. This, however, you don't have to pay rent for another several months because though the rule says that, the Supreme Court said it, we have another take on it that will, you know, and uh, again, go back to the, what I said earlier, all intended to be virtuous. This is the human predicament. So if somebody says, I don't need God, you say, you don't even know that you need God if you're talking that way. Because only God is righteous and only God can help us be what we all want to be. God's not imposing this on us. God's inviting us to be what we were created to be. God is saving us, not trying to squash us. Even the judgment isn't a squashing moment. It's a moment to say, here's your need. Do you see your need? And so we suffer from lack of righteousness, and therefore God came into the world in Jesus Christ to demonstrate his righteousness. Okay, God, if you're so, you know, great, let's see what you do. And so he says, sure, okay. And God comes into the world, and when they, they brought him to a trial, we call it a mock trial, uh, they could find no sin in him. And the closest they could come up with was, well, he claims to be God, and that's blasphemy, that's close enough, let's go for it. So Paul, writing to some Roman believers, many of them working under the authority of Caesar in the version of the White House, right? And in, in the uh, culture of Rome, in the, in the power structure of Rome, uh, now that they've become a congregation. Uh, and he says to them, for in the gospel, uh, this good news of God coming to make things right in the world, for the gospel, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. You get to see it. It's not disregard the man behind the curtain. You know, don't look too closely as I do the trick with the cards. It's just, it's all here. It's all here. God has revealed a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. That means we're dependent on him for our virtue. Again, not to humiliate us, but to lift us up as beloved sons and daughters uh, of the God Most High. And so Jesus' credibility was his perfect righteousness. What's ours? What's our credibility? Carl, uh, Dr. Marx, how do you feel it's gone so far? Not what I hoped. 
And you can say that to every single leader in any situation throughout history. How do you think it's going? Not that well. Somebody asked Churchill, so, Mr. Churchill, what do you think of this thing called democracy? I think it's horrible. It's just that it's better than all the other systems, right? We're left with that conundrum. Well, it's the best we can do. And so faith is saying, okay, what God do you want to do? We defer to God. He becomes our credibility. The gospel tells us that our righteousness is revealed and realized in Jesus. Not, well, he's righteous, therefore I don't have to be. No. He's revealed righteousness. It's personal. It's in him. And he's in me. And so I can start to realize my real nature, created in the image of God as a beloved son or daughter by faith. And so he's the standard for righteousness, and he's also the source of righteousness. He's not just, you should do what I do. Because nobody can use Jesus as an example and actually follow him. He is our example because he says, look, I'm the example and I'm also the source. I'm actually going to supply what you need to appropriate this, to live into this. Alinda did it so beautifully in her prayer. If we, if we say we have no sin, we're lying to ourselves and everybody else. But if we confess our sin, he's faithful and will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's what faith is. It's leaning on God's promises. Uh, I love the way that, uh, and, and, and it's really being clothed then in God's righteousness. I love the way that Isaiah foreshadows this. You see this in Isaiah 61, uh, verse 10. Uh, Isaiah is speaking uh, uh, on behalf of God, and he says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. It makes you smile whenever you see a bride and a groom in any setting. You've been in situations where you're taking a walk through a park and also you see you didn't expect a bride and a groom. You're by some little lake or a pond. You're, wherever you are in some unlikely spot you didn't expect, you see a bride and a groom, everybody smiles. Something really beautiful is happening here. They're clothed, not just in in love, but they're clothed in ways that say, I'm here for a very special occasion. I'm in a special frame of mind. I have a new, fresh identity. Uh, I'm a bride. I'm a groom. Uh, we're husband and wife. Powerful. So that leads us to the second uh, big idea. If the first is, is God's character, character in ours is what is really a virtue. The second is it that as we talk about aspect of it, kindness and goodness uh, are virtues, kindness being a relational virtue and goodness being a moral virtue. Uh, let's think about that for a second. Kindness is an emotional virtue, a relational virtue. Goodness is about a moral basis. To be good. Uh, when, when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, good teacher, and, and Jesus said, there's no one good but God. He's the moral category of one, right? And then kindness is about relationally, emotionally connecting that goodness uh, to people and to situations. So there's a moral basis for our goodness. And so like all uh, virtues, they're rooted in Christ, the paragon of righteousness. Paul in Colossians says he's the firstborn of all creation. Not that he was the first created being, he's not created. But he's the example He's the highest example of what creation is meant to look like. So he's the, the, remember, the standard and the source. 
And so when we apply it to things like uh, we've been talking about, you know, love and patience and peace and uh, self-control previously, now we're talking about kindness and goodness. And, and these sound like soft things that don't really matter much. Kindness and goodness. Uh, I was talking to a young woman, a woman recently whose brother is in the British Special Forces. Uh, and so he's a full-on warrior. High level of training. He's been to university. Um, super smart guy. Wants to do great things in his life. But here he is in this situation. And um, I said, that's tricky because uh, uh, you get disconnected from your heart in order to go through those kinds of situations because otherwise you just can't take all the pain and the heartache and heartbreak. And she said, yeah, his girlfriend is really good about that. She's all about the soft stuff. I said, isn't it funny how the soft stuff is really the significant stuff? And we talk about hard sciences and soft sciences. You go, no. Uh, these are the essential sciences. Kindness and goodness are essential. You want to be a real warrior? You better be kind and good. Because ultimately you'll lose your soul if you're not. You want to be a phenomenal politician? Fantastic. Become kind and good. If you're kind and good, uh, that's the kind of regulator you need, right? Because as we said earlier, none of the rules will actually help in that moment when you have to make a serious, significant moral and relational decision. I love the way, um, again, uh, the Bible helps us see this practically. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, uh, you see this scenario where Jesus is invited to, the, to a Pharisee's dinner party. And the Pharisees were, were meant to be uh, one of these virtue movements in Israel's history. Uh, coming back from captivity, they said, we never want to get in that situation again. Let's be virtuous. Let's be righteous. And they said, well, God has given us you know, 10 commandments, and we've added literally 601, uh, 610 because there's 613 more commandments, right? The 613 commandments, of the first, after, including the first 10. We've added all these commandments, but we need more. But there's more. Uh, and so the Pharisees said, you know, we need to be, build barricades in front of the barricades in front of the barricades so we don't go off the cliff again. And so they were super suspicious of Jesus. He was kind of rocking their world. He was rocking their world and undermining what they saw as their authority. Because he's saying, it's the Sabbath. Let's heal somebody. What do you think God would do on a Sabbath? He'd, he'd give life. He'd bring life. And they're going, no, that's not okay. And so when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table, which is how they hung out at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. She was living a sinful life, but she's got a very expensive token with her. So I have no idea what she's doing. Probably... Uh, consulting services, I don't know, whatever it was, but, you know. Um, she was doing something that created a lot of wealth, but it didn't help her reputation. So obviously, obviously she had enough pull to be able to, and, you know, significance and, and authority uh, and status of some kind to make her way into this Pharisee's dinner party. So she shows up, they're like, uh, okay. And she comes in, you know, nobody wanting to act like, oh, uh, not like I know her, um, Oh, hey, oh, never mind. Uh, so she came in with this alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind Jesus, um, behind him, at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. 
Now, the Pharisees are squirming at this point. I would be squirming at this point. Wouldn't you be? If you were to party like this and this started happening, you go, oh, this is awkward, 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 awkward. You know, oh, look at the time. Oh, my gosh. Like, you know, it's just awkward. Do you like awkward social situations? Who does? Nobody. You know, it's just awkward. And so, um, okay, I got to stop here just one second. Jesus loved awkward moments. Have you noticed that? Not to torment people, but to teach people. He allowed for those awkward moments as places to say, hey, while you're in limbo, <laughs> while you're deciding whether to stay or go, uh, let's just look at this. Look at this. This is a human situation, you know? There you have it. The people really trying to get it right, hosting Jesus to their party, so they can really undermine him and say, we, we proved it. In this long conversation around dinner, we've shown you how wrong you are. Meanwhile, this woman who rocks their sense of what is normative and acceptable comes in and totally disrupts the entire place. And Jesus seems to be fine with it. He just seems to be, yeah, sure. <laughs> going, oh, my gosh. And so I feel for the Pharisees right now. But it's one of those few times I go, oh, those poor Pharisees. Oh, those poor Pharisees. When the Pharisee who had invited him, finally, he's the only guy, everybody's looking at him like, what are you going to do about this? Oh, I better handle it. When he sees this, he said to himself, he said to himself, rehearsing what he's going to say to Jesus. Like, I can't get this wrong. I only have one shot at it. I better get it right. And so he says to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. At that point, a light should have come on that, oh, maybe he does know. How do we know what the Pharisee was thinking? I'm guessing that at some point he had a chance to tell his story and say, you know, when I first met Jesus, it was really awkward. I was hosting a dinner party, which I understood about five minutes into it would be my last dinner party because nobody would ever come to another one that I hosted. And as I was thinking about why Jesus was doing this and whom he was interacting with, it occurred to me, maybe the kingdom of God is breaking into the world that I've so tried to bind up in virtue and is now falling apart in front of me. You have a sense that might have been what's going on here? I, wouldn't, I would love to know the rest of the story, wouldn't you? How do we know what the guy was thinking? Well, let's pause here uh, from in the story. Simon, the Pharisee, confuses Jesus' kindness with being clueless. If he only knew. Obviously, he can't be God. He didn't know. He didn't know this. Uh, have you noticed that when you try to be kind, people often treat that as weakness? Don't confuse my kindness with weakness. In this case, it's don't confuse my kindness with cluelessness. I know what I know. I know who you are. I know who she is. And I know who I am. And I've come for you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and I've come for you. Wow. So Jesus did know what kind of woman she is and treats her with kindness. Why? as a way of confirming and approving who she is? No, out of his goodness. Goodness is always a foundation for kindness. Not moral superiority, but moral authority. I have the moral authority to be kind. Years ago, uh, as part of a divorce recovery workshop uh, process, uh, another person on our staff had created this thing, really neat thing, uh, it ended up in Orange County, uh, specifically Newport Beach, Irvine. 14,000 people uh, had gone through by the time we moved down here. 14,000. And, and hundreds and hundreds of them were, were kids. 
uh, and then teenagers and then children. Because at some point we said, hey, they're not just the mom and dad's going through the divorce, the kids are going through the divorce too in some form. And so as we, as it, it took off and oh, it, it, it swept the country, people wanted to do this. And, and yet it was interesting. There were churches that said, oh, no, we, we just don't, we won't do that. I'm like, why? Because it'll look like we're affirming and confirming divorce. It's like saying to the emergency room doctors, you know, you guys are affirming and confirming blood, guts, and gore here. Like, uh, no. <laughs> when, you, when you're looking at your intestines in your hands, this is where you want to come. We accept all people who are dealing with blood, guts, and gore. That's what we do in the emergency room. So this is Jesus' scenario here. He knows what kind of woman she is. Don't confuse my kindness with cluelessness. It's based on my goodness. So as a moral imperative, we said, how can we put our arms around people going through divorce? How do we love these people, accept them and love them and walk with them through this horrible thing so they don't just go through it, that they can grow through it? And we had no strings attached. You don't have to believe anything. It's just that acknowledge you're going through divorce and we think we have some tools to help you. Well, you know, as so many people came to know Christ in that or renewed their commitment to Christ because they felt this love and acceptance, but they never for one minute thought we were all about promoting divorce. So kindness is about respect and being thoughtful, attentive, considerate, empathetic. Do you think God, do you think of God as being kind? Really? Do you think of God as being kind? Most people would like to, they'd say that, but most people I've ever talked to say, no, really, I think he's harsh. I just don't get why he did what he did and let happen what he let happen. At the end of the day, I think he's harsh. I believe in God, but there's a part of me that's a little bit embarrassed. Yep, I think my God is kind of a bully. Our culture, in its crazy virtue signaling and sneering manner, sees that God is a bully. Because if God doesn't agree with what I think is right, he's a bully. And they miss a point that, no, he's so good, he cares about you enough to tell you the truth. The Hebrew word here is the word hesed. You have to like, act like you're clearing your throat. Chesed. Chesed. Um, uh, is this loving kindness. It's, it's righteous loving kindness. Chesed. And so uh, it's, it's translated as mercy, kindness, loving kindness. It's a big powerful word in, in the Old Testament and then brought into the New Testament as well. Uh, it's the, it is the consistent, faithful, relentless, lavish, extravagant, unrestrained, and focused love of God. It's, it's, it's somebody described it in a poem, kind of a creepy analogy, but the hound of heaven. The hound of heaven. It's like the hound of the Baskervilles, but after you. But only it's when it catches you, it says, I'm here to give you God's love, right? Kind of a mixed metaphor of, of sorts. So God has told us what his standard is. Psalm 23, 6. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Surely your goodness and mercy, that's chesed, will follow me forever. I can't shake it. I love Micah 6, 8. Uh, uh, I, 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 first of all, I love the way, it, it's, I love the Hebrew phrase, higid laha adam matov. Higid laha adam matov. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. Tov is good. So goodness is based in God's goodness. Higid laha adam matov. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. What is good? Well, what does the Lord require of you, Micah says, but to do justice, to love kindness. There's that loving kindness, chesed. 
and to walk humbly with your God. This is the core of the kingdom of God. I just, as I keep saying, I love that about God. It's also what we love most in one another. In a study of 37 cultures, uh, they had 16,000 respondents across 37 cultures, and they asked them what was the number one desired trait in a partner. The first one, consistently, kindness. The second, intelligence. The third, tickets to a Bruno Mars concert. Um, I don't know where the third one came from, but there you have it. Kindness, uh, intelligence, and something else, you know. Um, Wow, that's powerful. Uh, probably the, mo- the greatest rabbi, uh, certainly of the 20th century and uh, leaking into the 21st, though he didn't live into the 21st century, is a man named um, Avraham, Abraham Heschel. He was a child prodigy. Uh, he was, uh, as a little boy, was a brilliant scholar of the Talmud. He came from a long line of, of rabbis, and he was particularly just brilliant. Photographic memory, um, devoted to God, and uh, ended up being a you know an incredible philosopher theologian in the Jewish community in the in the American community in in American theology. Uh, if you ask a, a, an American evangelical scholar um, about a- Abraham Heschel, they go, "Oh my gosh!" Uh, this is, he wrote a book called Sabbath, which is the best book I've ever read on the Sabbath. Abraham Heschel, an amazing man, brilliant man, uh, revered, respected, uh, intimidating. Uh, big guy with a hat and a dark coat and a beard and piercing eyes. But this is what he said. He said, when I was young, I used to admire intelligent people. As I grow older, I admire kind people. You see the transition there? Kindness is at the heart of God. It became at the heart of Abraham Heschel. He realized, all my intelligence, all my brilliance, so what? If I'm not applying Micah 6, 8, if I'm not applying and recognizing Psalm 23. So picking up the story again with Jesus and the awkward Pharisee moment, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Oh, I can hardly wait, Lord, you know, kind of a thing. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii. Uh, denarii was a day's wages. And the other 50. One guy owes him 100, the other guy owes him 50. Neither of them them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. And Jesus said, you have judged correctly. That's common sense, right? Well, yeah. And then Jesus turned toward the woman and said to Simon, now he's he's talking to Simon, he turns to her, it's kind of doing one of these. Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me water for my feet. That was a standard custom. You, come, you go to anybody's house, they'd, they'd, they'd symbolically, ceremonially wash your feet to welcome you as a guest. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, you know, a ceremonial greeting, kind of a French thing, two, 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 two cheeks. But this woman... From the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, a sign of God's shalom. But she has poured perfume on my feet, a sign of reverence and honor and actually worship. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. 
She's, he's basically saying, she's a walking, talking analogy of Micah 6.8. Which I will remind you, is doing justice, loving kindness, walking humbly before God. And then Jesus finishes by saying, but whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. You are so pumped up and puffed up with your righteousness and virtue, Simon. You don't need the forgiveness of God. You're just awesome as you are. And therefore, you don't even recognize God when he comes into your house. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Remember like the woman caught in adultery? They wanted to stone her, and Jesus said, whoever has never sinned, throw the first stone. And they walked away from the oldest to the youngest. And then he said to her, uh, does no one um, accuse you anymore? No. Well, your sins are forgiven. Same kind of thing, same phrase, your sins are forgiven. Then he says, go and sin no more. Repent. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Kindness and goodness in bright neon. Jesus treated her with kindness and goodness, then described her as such. Simon, do you see her kindness? Do you see her goodness? This is an act of penitence and repentance, Simon. This is an act of humility and even humiliation. In your presence, she's come in here, knowing the judgment she'd received from you. She's poured out her heart. And this, 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 this extravagant example of love and devotion in front of all of you because she's so convicted of her own sin. Your rules didn't get her there. And your rules won't get her from there. Not to say that rules are bad. They're just not enough. Third point then. I want and need people in my life who are kind and good. Don't you? We desperately need people in our life who are kind and good. Likewise, the people in my life and yours need and want us to be kind and good. If you came home and you said, hey, I lost my job. I don't know what we're going to do. Presumably, your spouse, your kids would say, you know, you're kind and good. That's enough. We'll figure it out. person gets so desperate. They're so judgmental of themselves. They feel like they've let everybody down. They want to take their own life. What if they called their family and said, hey, I just want to let you know I'm going to take my life. I feel like I've been such a failure or a disappointment. And they say, no, no, no. Your kindness and your goodness is enough. Big fails, yes. Mistakes, yeah. Tragic, we'll get over them. We'll get through them. Kindness and goodness will get us through. We will thrive and bless others as we apply kindness and goodness generously. Kindness and goodness are an act of generosity. That's why it says God loves a generous giver. Okay, here's the money, fine. Versus, oh man, my pleasure, my privilege, yes. I get to be a part of that? Yeah, I'd love to fund that. I'd love to participate in that. So virtue, righteousness, always has a profound positive social impact. Look what happened in that woman's life. We know that this guy Pharisee tells somebody sometime later what his thoughts were that night. But can, you know, virtue and righteousness can also and will cause pushback and criticism. You will be criticized for your goodness and, and kindness. No good deeds is, goes unpunished. We know that. Just remember, it's about God quality life, and it will include suffering and sacrifice. Your goodness and kindness will not always be rewarded in the way you expect it to be. Your reward 
always is kindness and goodness. It's not accolades. Because you might not get accolades. You might get abuse. The Pharisees were thinking abusive thoughts about Jesus when he was being kind of good. They were thinking abusive thoughts, judgmental thoughts about the woman in the midst of her kindness and goodness. But there's a greater peril and pain in ignoring kindness and goodness than just avoiding suffering and sacrifice. Why? Because they're essential gifts given us by God, and we are accountable for using them. Well, I don't even believe in God. <laughs> Too bad. He holds you accountable for who you are. And if you do know him, you even have less of an excuse to say, I, I choose to withhold my kindness and goodness. Now, I think you can be absolutely critical of any political leader, anybody, anywhere, any system, any situation. It's okay to be critical because critical is saying, I don't like what I see or I think it could be better. What we don't want to ever be is unkind and immoral and not good. Why? Because these things strengthen our conscience, they shape our character, they equip us to bless others. They're essential to our humanity. You lose these, you lose your humanity. You lose, you lose these, you lose your true authority. And therefore, righteousness, virtue, is more than being nice. It brings us close in to awkward situations in us and around us. Nice uh, means being pleasant, agreeable, and, and, and satisfactory. Nice is nice. It's just not enough. It's just not enough. We live in a culture that has settled for nice. Why? We say, I'm a nice person, but you know what? I hate them. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. You know, so we, we use nice as a cover for all kinds of unkindness and ungoodness. Or we use it dismissively. Oh, he's such a nice guy. Kindness and goodness go to the heart of relationships and morality. They're desperate, desperate. Uh, in, in uh, their lack. We are desperate for their lack. There's a big deficit right now of kindness and goodness. We don't need more niceness. We don't need, a, a, you know, what, the, what the Patrick Lencioni and the five dysfunctions of a team calls artificial, you know, false harmony. False harmony is deadly in an organization, deadly in a marriage, deadly in a family, deadly in a church. What we want is to have to get really awkwardly in conflict sometimes, but not forsake our kindness and our goodness in the process. And so kindness and goodness are indicators that God is at work in us. I ask you, is there enough kindness and goodness in our hearts, in our homes, in our church, in our schools, in our prisons, uh, in all the other human institutions that you are part of? There's no such thing as too much goodness and kindness, right? How could there be? We give time, attention, empathy, care, and consideration to the needs of others. Anybody can do it, rich or poor, learned or illiterate, young or old. Nobody is exempt. Nobody is incapable of giving kindness and goodness. Uh, children learn from what they see, hear, and do. What they experience, they internalize as habits and virtues. And as someone has said, I love this, I, I, I have a slide on it. When there is righteousness in the heart, there is beauty in the character. When there's beauty in the character, there's harmony in the home. When there's harmony in the home, there is order in the nation. When there is order in the nation, there is peace in the world. This is not a pie in the sky sort of a, here's why I'd like to be Miss America kind of a speech. This is not there's anything wrong with wanting to be Miss America. If any of you are aspiring to that, God bless you. Just be kind and good. Don't be nice. 
So I'll leave you with this thought. Brilliance of mind, great talent, innovative creativity are great, essential, fantastic, nothing wrong with them. However, without goodness and kindness, they cannot right wrongs. They cannot dry tears. They cannot calm fears. They cannot mend broken hearts. How will you apply kindness and goodness this week? How will you receive kindness and goodness this week? It just might be in a very awkward moment that you create or someone else creates, and God allows it to happen. I don't know. Maybe it'll be just in a normal, conventional way. I hope so. But if it's really awkward and kind of weird, maybe this is a little life lesson, right? So Lord Jesus, that's my prayer for me, my family, my friends, our, our, our community here of family and friends. We want to somehow understand in a new and fresh way how to live a virtuous life. We want to learn in, in new and fresh ways what it means to be kind and good. Lord, this room is filled with people who are kind and good. I pray you give them sheer dogged endurance in being more so, and not giving up, not being distracted or dissuaded by pushback or criticism. May your kindness and goodness flow out of us in a way that not only blesses us, but blesses us to bless others in your name. We pray this in Jesus' high and holy name. Amen. As we wrap up worship, this is a time of, of offering. Uh, I don't mean just giving money. If you want to give money, fantastic. You can give it on your way out um, in that little uh, box on the wall there. Uh, but what, by offering in a larger way, what I mean is, what is God doing in you that you need to receive? And then what are you receiving? And you want to say, Lord, this is for you. I, I commit this to you. I commit me to you. Uh, so this is a high and holy moment of, of hearing the music, maybe singing but also remembering, Lord, ah, you so bless me. Here's my response to you. Uh, he is with you. He is for you. If you've never opened your heart to him, do it today. Open your heart to Jesus. Say, Lord, come into my life. Uh, this is the place where you start to know him. It's not when you get answers to all your doubts. It's at the point of your doubts. That you say, Lord, teach me who you are. And so receive him. Uh, or maybe if you're far from him, come back to him. Maybe things are going great for you right now. Give all praise and glory to him and ask him what he wants to do in the midst of this great, wonderful moment. So now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord who loves you more than you can ask or imagine give you everything you need to walk in newness and fullness of life with him, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.